Have you ever had an idea for a cool new food product? Does your grandmother's chocolate chip cookie recipe deserve to be on grocery store shelves? Have you ever wondered what it would take to get from that idea to actually being on grocery store shelves? My name is Mike Von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. My guest this week is Derek Vela, the director of the Guelph Food Innovation Center, a facility and service at the University of Guelph, which helps uh, different types of food companies at different stages of development think about, formulate, develop new food products that, uh, that, that will have potential to bring to the market. He talks about what they do at the Guelph Food Innovation Center, what are some of the things you need to think about, and the complexity of bringing a new product to market. I think you'll find it fascinating as I did. Hey, Derek, uh, thanks for taking the time to chat today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks you so much for having me on. Let's get right to it. You're the director of the Guelph Food Innovation Center, which is a nice, interesting sounding title. But why don't you help us understand a little bit what you do at the Guelph Food Innovation Center? Sure, yeah. So the Guelph Food Innovation Center is part of the Department of Food Science here in the University of Guelph. And our main role is to act kind of as a conduit between the Canadian food industry and uh, the university. So the staff and faculty and research and students that, uh, that we have here. And our main goal is really to help facilitate new project starts, startup companies and existing companies in bringing new food products to the Canadian marketplace. That in 30 seconds sounds like a you know, pr pretty simple description, but I'm sure that bringing new products to the marketplace is not as simple as you just made it sound. What does a company come to you for? Do they have an idea? Are they looking for ideas from faculty? Is it or some of the above, all of the above? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's kind of all of the above. So different companies, we and we work with companies from, you know, really early stage pre-revenue startups, in some cases, you know, students that are in graduate programs or even undergraduate programs, all the way up to large national and international companies. So as an organization, we really try and provide services at, at each one of those steps along the way. So for a very early stage company, Typically, they're coming with a, a product or an idea. Um, they've identified a, a business need or a consumer need, and they're coming to us to help develop new prototypes. Um, in which case, for those small companies, we're as a you know as an organization, we're providing a step up. So we're a stepping stone on the way to to growth. For larger companies, we're kind of a stepping stone on the way down. And the reason for that is that typically these are full scale manufacturers. They're running products in the hundreds or you know tens of thousands of kilos and for them to run a small experiment on a new product um, is a significant investment and so we can leverage our pilot plants and we can leverage our technologists to be able to try and uh, take take that that product idea and run small scale experiments in our pilot plants to be able to sort of serve their needs without the huge commitment and frankly the waste that comes along with it and then for mid-sized companies, uh, we are, you know, really kind of a full spectrum provider. So we offer product development services, R&D, research, analysis, um, pretty much everything you would need to bring a food product to market. 
And the, the main thing there is, you know, kind of as you've alluded to, it's never simple. Bringing food products to the marketplace is complex and there's a lot of problem solving that goes into it, for sure. If I come to you with an idea, and I'll use an example that you and I have in common. I had a group of undergraduate students, you'll recall, who came to you with an idea for a liqueur, a soy-based liqueur. Fifth bean, yeah. Fifth bean. And they sort of had this wild idea. None of the three of them were were food scientists. And so they just came to you with an idea and said, A, is this possible? And B, what do we need to do to do that? So what steps... Sorry, that, that's sort of that really early stage concept mm -hmm. idea. What steps do you take a group like that through? It, it, that was a group of students. It could just as easily be someone who's made something in their kitchen or has an idea and wants to bring something to the market. What steps do you take them through? Sure. Yeah. So for really early stage companies like that, uh, typically we'll bring them through something called a red flag analysis. Um, and that's sort of gauging... A couple of things, you know, in, in part, it's gauging whether their idea is is feasible. Like, can we, from a food science and a manufacturing perspective, make it? Um, we also try to take a look at the consumer. So is there really a consumer demand for it? Is this just your, your known as favorite recipe and you really love it and you want to, to make a product? Or is there really a need for it? Um, and that helps us kind of gauge the level of investment that they, they should be making. And then... You know, um, on the same token, we try and evaluate the the people that are bringing the idea to us. Um, are they prepared for the the frankly significant investment of time and money and energy that goes into bringing something to the marketplace? So that's the first thing we kind of do a red flag analysis and give them an, an honest portrayal of sort of what they're looking at. Uh, and then if everything looks good there, then we would sort of take it to the next step and we would say, all right, so where are you at now? Do you have a prototype or do you need one? When we look at your prototype, is it is it ready for commercialization? Are we ready to um, bring that into a factory, or do we need to kind of pair you up with you know ingredients and processes that go beyond your your, your kitchen, as you said, you know the Vitamix and the things you're buying from the grocery store, and kind of start leveraging commercial ingredients, things that we can buy at scale. Um, you know, in some cases. Scaling a product from your kitchen to uh, a manufacturer is relatively simple. In other cases, it can be nearly impossible. And, and that's part of the experience um, and expertise that we bring in, into the conversation. It's interesting to me that you started with that red flag analysis because, you know, and I talk to this, I talk to students about this all the time when they're doing, you know, business analysis or product analysis or business plans in, in a capstone course I teach. I say, don't ignore the don't proceed option, right? Do a comprehensive yeah. analysis. And I think too often companies get excited and aren't willing to say, yeah, maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe I have to find the next one, you know, or Derek can help me fine tune it. And this is where it goes. But, but that first step is just saying, is this a dumbass idea? Mm -hmm. Is it just that I like Nona's recipe and no one else will, or there are a million of Nona's recipes already on the market and making that sort of go, no go decision is pretty critical. And having kind of someone without the emotional stake in the idea is probably incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what a lot of it comes down to. I also, besides being the director of the GFIC, I also teach food product development here in the department. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is that 
your your first idea is typically not your best idea. The the first idea, you know, it may include the insight that's important, but oftentimes it takes some honest reflection and some honest feedback to get you to truly kind of the great idea. And so by simply going through that red flag analysis, a lot of times we will explore areas and identify challenges and oftentimes we'll identify opportunities that the um, that the person that we're working with or the company we're working with didn't initially see. And more often than not, that is the product that ends up getting pursued. So I think that there is real value to spending that time up front um, with a dispassionate uh, observer with some experience. And for, for young companies, that's one of the things we try and bring to the table. So a lot of that is sort of market level business analysis that you've talked about. But an important component of what you you can and and do do for companies is that sort of food science technical thing, right? Helping them come up with a recipe, helping them come up with ingredients that will work, with a product that will be shelf stable, with a product that consumers will like, that looks and tastes and feels uh, like something that's appealing. And, and it's, a, it's a lot like, of boxes that a product has to check to to be successful, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so even things like flavors and prototypes and how about this? And and I'm thinking a little bit, but you and I both wear glasses. So we've both been for uh, for an eye test where they go, is this better or is this better? And you're really hard pressed sometimes to tell the difference. And that's when you know you're close. Right. And at the beginning, the differences typically are huge. Um, yeah. So, you know, to use your example with Fifth Bean, um, they brought to us a, a, a prototype that they had developed um, and it it looked and tasted good, but most of the things they were buying off, off of grocery stores and stuff like that. So we would have worked with them just exactly as you've, you've, you really outlined it quite well. You know, let's start with food safety. How are we addressing that? So then once we have established that, we can sort of take next steps with that kind of in mind. And then the next thing is um, how do we make sure that it doesn't separate out or kind of go weird on the shelf, make sure it's appealing to the consumer. And then finally, we filter down through our priorities until finally we're perfecting the taste and the color and the appearance and the packaging and everything else. So it is an iterative process. And at the end, yeah, oftentimes we are a bunch of people standing around or we have a, a sensory panel and we're asking kind of that question, is A better or is B better? You know, do you like the slightly more vanilla or coffee or whatever it is that we're doing? Uh, do you like this texture better? Um, and trying to to get a product that is not necessarily what I like or what the manufacturer likes or what the co-packer likes or what the founder likes, but who the final consumer, like what, what are the right set of parameters and attributes that's going to make them want to buy it and then keep on buying it at the end. And, and I think that something that a lot of people don't think about in the product development cycle is it's not just about the taste. It is about the mouthfeel. It is about the texture. It is about it is about the entire sensory experience. The the sensory experience and and also you know um, there's so many things that go on behind the scenes that the consumer never sees that makes that product feasible. Um, so you know how attractive is it to the end consumer? Absolutely, that's very important. It's also important that it is we have somewhere we can manufacture it. And get, that can be a real challenge for a, a new company uh, that, that maybe doesn't have the capital expenditure to buy their own manufacturing facility. Um, how appealing is it to a retailer? Um, in 
contrast to their operations and the other competitors that are on the marketplace uh, and, and, and a whole lot of other things besides. But um, these are just some of the things that we think about in, in terms of being able to bring the, the best possible product to, to the shelf. You are essentially a jack of all trades there. I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here. A jack of all trades. How did you get to this place? Talk a little bit about you and and how you ended up in this role and providing this advice and guidance to to startups or even the resources to established companies to provide another another perspective. Sure, I actually I've got a very kind of atypical path to the role that I'm in. I started my career out um, as a chef. So I went to culinary school. I acted as a chef for, for many, many years. Um, fell in love with the idea of food science, came back and did a couple of degrees in, in food science. Worked in the food industry. So I worked for a number of companies, including um, CPG, so consumer packaged goods type products. Um, I have worked for food service and hospitality companies, as well as uh, large uh, retailer companies. So um, getting lots of experience in terms of how things are brought to market, what works, what doesn't. And I think, you know, a really important component to that is having lots of visibility to not just the product development path, but also, you know, what's important to the marketing and the finance group and the logistics and the operations and the CEO and the end consumer and, you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah, just spent a lot of time gathering up as much experience as we could in a lot of the areas. And um, then when the opportunity came up here at the University of Guelph, I saw the role as director of, uh, of innovation here at the GFIC and uh, thought that's that that meets all of my my uh, my desires in terms of you know teaching working with startup companies working with really new innovative interesting products and uh, and, and and took the leap it just strikes me now that there are some parallels between your previous life as a chef where you where you were developing new items on the menu and new consumer products or new food products but the the latter is probably much more complex because there are more steps in the game and there are more things that are outside of your control. Yeah, I'd say different types of complexity. I don't know if one is necessarily more complex from the other. I'd say, you know, when you're working as a as a chef, the types of ingredients and the things that you're working with and the, the feedback cycle from the consumer is much, much faster. Yeah. Um, you can kind of do anything as long as you can do it right there with with the tools that you have. Whereas in the food industry, you know, we have access to a lot more tools, a lot different ingredients, the ability to plan and, and do things really kind of thoughtfully and methodically. We have a lot more latitude in that way. But the feedback cycle is longer and the, the size of prize, frankly, is a lot bigger. So there's less yeah. margin for error, right? Yeah, there's more at stake, but there's more opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We got to the point in our discussion where we were at the tasting panel and we were doing that sort of fine adjustment. We've gotten through the food safety, the product stability, and, and now we have a product. The next step is figuring out if we can do this cost effectively and to scale. And that's mm-hmm. something that you do at the GFIC as well. I mean, you said for small companies, you can be that first manufacturing facility for small batches to get them started and then help them find other toll manufacturers if they're not going to do it themselves. 
but also you have a facility for big companies who might want to run small batches just to try. Exactly. Yeah. That feasibility piece and the cost effectiveness is something that we very early on when I onboarded with GFIC, we recognized that that was a risk. So we got feedback from a lot of people in in the innovation space, in consultation, in um, you know other groups like ours, technical access centers and colleges and universities. And one of the things that we heard back from consumers or, or the users, so these are businesses or small businesses that are using the services, was that oftentimes products were being developed that would be great, but would have no path beyond the the formulation kitchen type thing. Yeah. So, you know, developing products that were either too expensive, had no um, commercialization steps. So there's no manufacturer that could facilitate that, that manufacturing to bring it to a, a national audience or even a, a regional audience. Uh, scalability of ingredients or processes, all of these kind of things that that can act as roadblocks for new innovation launches. So we really try and take a uh, end state first perspective, where we're taking a look at that that holistic feasibility. You know, is there a reasonable path to market? And if not, like sometimes our best option for creating a new food product um, is not the one that we pursue because that end piece is not there. So we may choose, you know, a a less than optimal way of developing a product because it fits into the overall, you know, better life cycle of actually launching and profiting from that product. Uh, There's no point in making a fantastic product that is either not profitable, too expensive, not manufacturable. um, And that's something we try and really bake into our process. Yeah. So it needs to check all those boxes to be effective. It has to be, you have to be able to make it. It has to be able to be safe. It has to be in a price at a price point that allows you to make some money, but that consumers find it appealing. Um, it has to meet regulatory requirements. Exactly. Yeah. To what degree, and I don't know if this is something, this is just occurring to me to, because we've done some work on this, the, you know, regulation and packaging requirements are also something that I think probably many companies, especially new in their first foray into the industry, have no idea of the complexity of the requirements. Right. What To what degree do things like the new front of package labeling requirements that are coming in the coming years feedback into formulation decisions? Yeah, absolutely. It really depends on the the company that we're working with. So if we're working with an established company that is, and and I'm just going to say an ice cream manufacturer, because we've worked a little bit on ice cream as well. um, You know, having a a relatively high sugar content in a product like that is kind of part and parcel of what the product is. And we can certainly develop low sugar versions of that. But, you know, when those new regulations come out, front of pack regulations, and so for the listeners who are not familiar with this, um, in the next few years, there's in all likelihood going to be regulations that products that have more than 15% of the RDA or the recommended daily intake of, uh, of sugar, fat, and salt will be actually on the front of the package. So kind of not dissimilar to how cigarettes had warnings on them um, yeah. starting back in the 90s. So for, for a company like that, I think that, um, you know, we would acknowledge it, but in all likelihood, we will, they will probably proceed anyway, because it is fundamental to kind of the, the product that they're making. It's, um, it's an indulgence. Yeah. For, so, for uh, new companies. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
No, no, I was just going to say, we've done some research on front of package labeling and really category matters. And so yeah. we didn't do ice cream per se, but we did potato chips. And on potato chips, if you put a warning about fat and salt, people go, duh, why do you think I'm eating them, right? Like, I know I'm going to hell. And I would expect to a degree that that's true for ice cream. No one thinks that ice cream isn't sweet. Right. It's products that people are surprised by. We called them nutritionally ambiguous products, products that people were surprised by that, you know, think about, well, yogurt was one. People are, are often surprised how much sugar is in yogurt. And has um, a huge all, health halo, right? Um, yeah. You know, yogurt is something that is that is healthy. Um, I used to work with a colleague that, that called it um, breakfast pudding because it, it yeah. more or less is the same composition as, as, as a pudding cup. Um, but people see it as being healthy and, and a good breakfast and food. The, and the other one was uh, pre-made spaghetti sauce. People have no idea how much sugar and salt are, are in those. And then they, then they became surprised. In those circumstances, we found, while it wasn't a huge impact, we found those front-of-packed labels more uh, impactful and more likely to affect choice. So I think that to a large degree, those decisions depend on category and target audience. Absolutely. And that's what I was kind of going to go on and say there is that when we're working with a new company, particularly if they're in the health space. So if we had a new company coming to us and let's use that yogurt example, and they wanted to really focus on health, we would recommend that they they get below those levels so they will stand out on the shelf. Yeah. Uh, for someone who wants to bring a, you know, maybe on-farm produced yogurt or milk, um, we we might actually recommend that they... Um, they they embrace something like that. So, you know, if I'm looking for a, a really indulgent Mediterranean style yogurt, I might look for something that has a, a high fat content because that's kind of what I'm looking for. And at least yeah. as the consumer, I'm I'm informed, I'm aware, and I can make that decision. And I think that's kind of what what we're really speaking to. I think it just highlights the range of criteria that go. It, it is not the old cliche: if you build a better mousetrap, if you produce a better yogurt, the world won't necessarily beat a path to your door. There are all of these other things that people don't often think about that happen before a product gets anywhere near the marketplace. Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there's a reason why we have, you know, so many different facings of yogurt or soda or chips on the marketplace. Each one is sort of targeting a different consumer. Um, Partially with the product, but, you know, brand is also really, really important. You know, how does that product display itself and communicate to the consumer? You know, most consumers are making decisions on the product, especially new products that they're buying within seconds, in seconds of seeing it uh, before they approach it, before they pick it up, look at the back of the product to see what the nutrition or the ingredients are. They are kind of making a really early decision based on just how the product looks on the shelf. And, you know, that's something that we also talk about with, with new companies is, you know, what are you going to say? How are you going to say it? And how can we build those things into the product that you want to bring to market so that, you know, your messaging lines up really nicely with the product and we're not wasting lots of extra cycles building in attributes that you're never really going to be able to communicate well to the consumer. That raises for me a, a really interesting point. I think it's fundamental that uh, to a degree, you have really very little time to make an impression. And you can put all sorts of time into the nutrition facts table and getting the ingredients right. But it's really, if you catch people's eye, 
you get an opportunity to come into the consideration set. And for many of us, we know that shopping for groceries, particularly we are creatures of habit. And if something is in our basket this week, it was probably in our basket last week. And, and really, you don't get a, a lot of opportunities for that impulse buy or for that change. And so you really have to catch people. And that's not just the product. That's how you present the product. Absolutely. The other point that you made that I think was interesting is to think about the suite of attributes that you're offering. And in some cases, it is leaving some attributes out, even not just not talking about them, but just not including them if they add cost, but not value. And so sometimes we try to make this sort of Cadillac and maybe this is what you were talking about earlier. We try and make this Cadillac of products when, in fact, we want a lot of or something in between and come up with the things that matter and eliminate the things that don't. Right. And exactly that. When we teach product development to our students here in the department, um, we spend a lot of time talking about that. A lot of time, you know, making sure that we really identify who the target consumer is, what's important to them not trying to throw too much information at consumers, understanding what the main insight is, having their their brand and the product and the attributes and the ingredients and everything that we're going to do with that product point towards the main reason why they're, they're going to buy that product. And oftentimes we talk about it in terms of the product doing a job. Yeah. And uh, like you said, you know, there's a certain inertia. Once we've hired a product to do a particular job for us, whether it's, you know, being a good breakfast or being a good snack or, you know, cleaning our windows or whatever the case may be. As long as it keeps doing that job, we're probably going to, to keep hiring it over and over again every time we go to the grocery store um, until we find another candidate that either does a really significantly better job or the product stops doing that job because of the cost equation doesn't make sense or it, it doesn't meet our needs anymore. So yeah, um, building the resume and making sure that that product is, is kind of finely tuned to all of our messaging and to the consumer is uh, is really what in our minds is, is an important ingredient for coming to the, the marketplace with a new product. And, and I think that's important because it's not just how we articulate the narrative we tell about our product, but it is the, specifically the stuff that's on the label. I'm firmly of the belief that many companies put so much information on the label, and part of that is regulatory requirements, that we've overwhelmed people and we're actually processing less of the information than we would if there was less on there. And so being very concise and specific is critical. Yeah, we kind of call that the, like the NASCAR effect sometime, that there's just so much on that thing that they're trying to look at. And it's moving so quickly uh, as you're sort of going through the grocery store that it's really hard to absorb what what's the main message. And um, yeah, so we, we try and do that in formulation. Uh, we try and make sure that all of those attributes sort of line up to the consumer that we're wanting to buy that product. And then once they do, we hope that they're going to keep on buying it because it fits their needs better than whatever the competitors are out there. Yeah, so we talk about the product development funnel, right? The the big sort of bunch of ideas, and then we gear it down. What proportion of new ideas actually make it to a shelf somewhere? Uh, so I think it depends on how you define that initial set. Um, yeah. So in different organizations that I've been in, those those ratios would vary wildly. 
So for a large, and I'll just kind of walk through some companies that I've worked with here. So for a large retailer, um, like a, a brand focused retailer, you know, that ratio might be 10%, could be less, where we have a lot of ideas coming to the table. Um, some of them get partway through that development funnel. Some get kicked out. Some finally make it to the shelf. Um, and then their longevity there is also, you know, dependent. For, for an environment like ours here at GFIC, it's significantly higher. However, I would I would kind of qualify that in saying that it's significantly higher. A lot of the products go to could go to shelf, but they may not get national or international distribution. So it may only serve a a local consumer base or a regional consumer base, not necessarily make it into the the Costco's or Metro's or Loblaws of the world. And what drives that difference? Oh, there's you know all of these factors that we've been talking about. Really, um, a big chunk of it is. Um, you know, in, there, there is significant investment. Uh, people oftentimes underestimate the investment, and I'm talking financial as well as time and yeah. commitment to bringing these things to the marketplace. It's a long-term process, typically bringing a food product to market. You know, you're looking at typically at least six months, oftentimes a year or more. There's a lot of cost that goes into it through, you know, everything from ideation to development, to scaling up, to packaging, to retail and buying shelf space and distribution and marketing and everything else. So, I mean, that's the biggest piece, making sure that the person that is, that is wanting to start a project really can see it through to the end. Uh, so that's, that's critical. And, you know, you sort of described us as uh, a jack of all trades in a sense. And, and food science for sure is like that. We're kind of engineer and micro and like microbiology and yeah. uh, chemistry and all of these things, you know, companies bringing a food product to market, need to sort of have the same ethos, I guess, right? Um, you can make a great product, like you said, but if the design isn't great of the packaging, people won't buy it. If you don't get distribution, if you don't see it, you know, if the price isn't right, people won't buy it. So th they really need to kind of invest in making sure that all those pieces of the puzzle are, are, are correct and, you know, giving them the best foot forward in terms of, you know, when they start hitting that marketplace, that things start to move. It's interesting. And I completely get what you're saying. I was frankly surprised that you said a higher proportion of the products that that come to GFIC make it through than do it say at a large at a large retailer and 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 maybe it's because large retailers are just thinking much more like they're they're brainstorming more things and are willing to consider more whereas someone comes to you with at least something of a fully formed idea and and not this broad suite of things let's try the one that's most successful i i just i just wondered if that red flag analysis might exclude more people who are dreamers or are less experienced absolutely and you know there's kind of two sides to the equation one i think that our red flag tools work really well and part of the reason for that is that we're a relatively small team, so we don't have unlimited bandwidth in the same way that a, a large corporation might. Uh, we can only run, you know, maybe 12 to 20 projects at any one given time, and uh, projects take some time. So we really focus on trying to work with companies that are, you know, a little bit further down the, the way, that really have the resources, that are really committed, um, that they understand what they're getting themselves into. Uh, for other companies that we're working on projects with, um, you know, we may say, well, you know, maybe the time is not now to work with us. Maybe the time is now to focus on something else and then come back to us once we've sort of checked a few more of these boxes and you're a little bit more ready to kind of proceed. 
Good. Well, I've taken already more time than I promised you, Derek. I appreciate you taking the time. I'll, I'll give you one more opportunity. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't or that you expected that we would talk about? Oh, that's that, that's a good question. Um, you, you know, I think what one of the things I maybe anticipated was you were going to ask me what kind of companies we work with or what kind of, you know, what's the most interesting projects we've worked on and... Um, not, not to say I had a, a canned answer for, for you. Yeah. But, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, um, what we primarily work on here at JFIC is mostly consumer packaged goods. We do do some work with food service. Um, we work a lot in protein and alternative protein and dairy. We have a long history in that. About 50% of my day is usually focused on ice cream, believe it or not. We work with all sorts of companies globally on, on ice cream projects, you know, ranging from the newest, most decadent, full fat on-farm products all the way to, you know, no sugar, keto, vegan, all, you know, yeah. there's nothing. We, the, the one thing we don't work on is kind of regular vanilla ice cream. We don't do a whole lot of yeah. that. <laughs> And, and that's, that's kind of the nature been perfected, right? Right, exactly. And that's that's kind of the nature of what we do is that we mostly work on edge cases. So we really try and work with companies that are trying to bring something new and interesting, but at the same time feasible and um, something that a consumer will accept and buy. And uh, it makes our days very, very interesting. So I, I was um, gonna, I was going to say that's a great place to finish, Derek, because I'm jealous. I think I would love. I, I don't. Have, I clearly don't have the skill to do your job. But it sounds like it's interesting and it sounds like uh, lots of fun and every day is probably different. Always interesting, always challenging. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed the, uh, the conversation. Thanks, Derek. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We strive to find topics of interest and relevance to people passionate about agriculture and food. If you have any suggestions, please visit us at foodfocusguelph.ca and leave a suggestion. We also have regular blog posts on the website you will find interesting. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you get your episodes, the website, Apple, Spotify, or many other platforms. We appreciate your reviews and it helps others find us. Stay tuned for more episodes.